Chapter Two of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Two, in which David Thring experiences the hospitality of the mountain people. Suddenly, the jolting ceased. The deep stillness of the night seemed only intensified by the low panting of the animals and the soft dropping of the wet snow from the trees. "'What is it?' said Thring, peering from under the canvas cover. "'Anything the matter?' The beasts stood with low-swung heads, the vapour rising white from their warm bodies, wet with the melting snow. His question fell unheard, and the girl who was climbing down over the front wheel began to unhitch the team in silence. He rolled the sleeping child in his rug and leaped out. Let me help you. What's the trouble? Oh, are you at home? I can do this, sir. I've done it a heap of times. Don't go nigh Pete, sir. He's mighty quick, and he's mean. The beast laid back his ears viciously as David approached. You ought not go near him yourself, he said, taking a firm grip of the bridle. Oh, he's safe enough with me, or frail. Hold him tight, sir, now you have him, till I get round there. Keep his head toward you, sir. He certainly is mean. The colt walked off to a low stack of corn fodder as she turned him loose with a light slap on the flank, and the mule, impatient, stamping and sidling about, stretched forth his nose and let out his raucous and hideous cry. While he was thus occupied, the girl slipped off his harness and, taking the bridle, led the beast away to a small railed enclosure on the far side of the stack and David stood alone in the snow and looked about him. He saw a low, rambling house which, although one structure, appeared to be a series of houses, built of logs plastered with clay in the chinks. It stood in a tangle of wild growth, on what seemed to be a wide ledge jutting out from the side of the mountain, which loomed dark and high behind it. An incessant, rushing sound pervaded the place, as it were a part of the silence or a breathing of the mountain itself. Was it wind among the trees, or the rushing of water? No wind stirred now, and yet the sound never ceased. It must be a torrent, swollen by the melting snow. He saw the girl moving in and out among the shadows, about the open log stable, like a wraith. The braying of the mule had disturbed the occupants of the house, for a candle was placed in the window, and its little ray streamed forth and was swallowed up in the moonlight and black shades. The child, awakened by the horrible noise of the beast, rustled in the corn fodder where Thring had left him. Dazed and wondering, he peered out at the young man for some moments, too shy to descend until his sister should return. Now she came, and he scrambled down and stood close to her side, looking up weirdly, his twisted little form shivering and quaking. "'Run in, Hoyle,' she said, looking kindly down upon him. "'Tell Mother we're all right, son.' A woman came to the door holding a candle, which she shaded with a gnarled and bony hand. "'That you, Cass?' she quavered. "'Who are you talking to?' "'Yes, Aunt Sally. We'll be there directly. Don't let Mother get cold.' She turned again to David. "'I reckon you'll have to stop with us to-night.' It's a right smart way to the cabin, and it'll be cold, and nothing to eat. We'll bring in your things now, and in the morning we can tote them up to your place with the mule, 
and Hoyle can go with you to show you the way. She turned toward the wagon as if all were settled, and Thring could not be effusive in the face of her direct and conclusive manner. But he took the basket from her hand. Let me. No. No, I will bring in everything. Thank you very much. I can do it quite easily, taking one at a time. Then she left him, but at the door she met him and helped him to lift his heavy belongings into the house. The room he entered was warm and brightly lighted by a pile of blazing logs in the great chimney-place. He walked toward it and stretched his hands to the fire, a generous fire, the mountain home's luxury. Something was cooking in the ashes of the hearth, which sent up a savory odor most pleasant and appealing to the hungry man. The meager boy stood near, also warming his little body, on which his coarse garments hung limply. He kept his great eyes fixed on David's face in a manner disconcerting, even in a child, had Thring given his attention to it, but at the moment he was interested in other things. Dropped thus suddenly into this utterly alien environment, he was observing the girl and the old woman as intently, though less openly, as the boy was watching him. Presently he felt himself uncannily the object of a scrutiny far distant from the child's wide-eyed gaze, and glancing over his shoulder toward the corner from which the sensation seemed to emanate, he saw in the depths of an old four-poster bed, set in their hollow sockets and roofed over by projecting light eyebrows, a pair of keen, glittering eyes. "'Yes, you do see me now, do ye?' said a high, thin voice in a toothless speech. "'Who be ye?' His physician's feeling instantly alert, he stepped to the bedside and bent over the wasted form, which seemed hardly to raise the clothing from its level smoothness, as if she had lain motionless since some careful hand had arranged it. "'No, ye don't know me, I reckon. Tain't likely. Who be ye?' she iterated, still looking unflinchingly in his eyes. "'It's a gentleman who knows Dr. Hoare, mother. He sent him. Don't fret yourself,' the girl said soothingly. "'I'm not one of the frettin' kind,' retorted the mother, never taking her eyes from his face and again speaking in a weak monotone. "'Who be ye?' "'My name is David Thring, and I am a doctor,' he said quietly. "'Where be ye from?' "'I come from Canada, the country where Dr. Hoyle lives.' "'I reckon so. He used to tell it his home was thar.' A pallid hand was reached slowly out to him. I'm right glad to see ye. Take a cheer and sit. Bring a cheer, Sally. But the girl had already placed him a chair, which he drew close to the bedside. He took the feeble old hand and slipped his fingers along to rest slightly on the wrist. You needn't stand watching me, Cass. You and Sally set Southern for the doctor to eat. I reckon you're all about gone for hunger. Yes, mother, right soon. Fry a little pork to go with that pone, Aunt Sally. Is any coffee left in the pot? I done put in a little more when I heard the mule holler. I knowed ye'd want it. Might throw in a mite more now the gentleman's come. The two women resumed their preparations for supper. The boy continued to stand and gaze, and the high voice of the frail occupant of the bed began again to talk and question. When did you come down from that thou contra where Dr. Hall lives at? she said in her monotonous wail. Four days ago. I travelled slowly, for I have been ill myself. It's right queer now. Pears like if I was a doctor, 
I wouldn't allow myself for to get sick. And you see Dr. Hall four days back. No, he has gone to England on a visit. I saw his wife, though, and his daughter. She is a young lady, is to be married soon. They do grow up, the little ones. Hit don't seem mon yesterday at Cass was like little Hall yonder. And hit don't seem like that since Dr. Hall was here, and little Hall came. We named him for the doctor. Well, I reckon ef the doctor was here now, at he could help me some. Maybe if he'd a stayed here, I never would a got down where I be now. He was a right good doctor, better than a yob doctor, most, I reckon so. David smiled. I think so myself, he said. Are there many herb doctors hereabout? Not rightly doctors, so to speak, but they is some that knows a heap about yobs. Good. Perhaps they can teach me something. The old face was feebly lifted a bit from the pillow, and the dark eyes grew suddenly sharp in their scrutiny. Who be ye, anyhow? What air ye here for? Such as you knows a heap already, thout making out to learn a wins. David saw his mistake and hastened to allay the suspicion which gleamed out at him almost malignantly. I am just what I said, a doctor like Adam Hoyle, only that I don't know as much as he, not yet. The wisest man in the world can learn more if he watches out to do so. Your herb doctors might be able to teach me a good many things. I spect you're right there. Only a heap of folks thinks they know it all first. There was a pause, and Thring leaned back in his stiff, splint-bottomed chair and glanced around him. He saw that the girl, although moving about setting to rights and brushing here and there with a unique homemade broom, was at the same time intently listening. Presently the old woman spoke again, her thread-like voice penetrating far. "'What do you allow to do here, in our mountains? There hain't no settlement nighabouts here, and them what sick hain't no money to pay doctors with. I reckon they'll have to stay sick for all of you ends.' David looked into her eyes a moment quietly. Then he smiled. The way to her heart, he saw, was through the magic of one name. What did Dr. Hoyle do when he was down here? Him? They hain't no one livin' like he was. Then David laughed outright, a gay, contagious laugh, and after an instant she laughed also. I agree with you, he said. But you see, I am a countryman of his, and he sent me here. He knows me well, and I mean to do as he did, if I can. He drew in a deep breath of utter weariness and leaned forward his elbows on his knees, his head in his hands, and gazed into the blazing fire. The memories which had taken possession of his soul during the long ride seemed to envelop him, so that in a moment the present was swept away into oblivion, and his spirit was, as it were, suddenly withdrawn from the body and projected into the past. He had been unable to touch any of the greasy cold stuff which had been offered him during the latter part of his journey and the heat brought a drowsiness on him, and a faintness from lack of food. "'Cass! Cassandra! Look to him!' called the mother shrilly, but the girl had already noticed his strange abstraction, and the small Adam Hoyle had drawn back, in awe, to his mother. "'Get some whisky, Sally,' said the girl, and David roused himself to see her bending over him. "'I must have gone off in a doze,' he said weakly. 
the long ride, and then this warmth. Seeing the anxious faces around him, he laughed again. It's nothing, I assure you. Only the comfort of the smell of something good to eat. He sniffed a little. What is it? he asked. Old Sally was tossing and shaking the frying salt pork in the skillet at the fireplace, and the odor aggravated his already too keen appetite. He was more sleepy, I reckon, shrilled the woman from the bed. Hate that pone done, Sally? No, tain't liquor he needs. Hit suther to eat. Then the girl hastened her slow, gliding movements, drew splint chairs to a table of rough pine that stood against the side of the room, and, stooping between him and the fire, pulled something from among the hot ashes. The fire made the only light in the room, and David never forgot the supple grace of her as she bent thus silhouetted, the perfect line of chin and throat black against the blaze, contrasted with the weird, witch-like old woman, with roughly knotted hair, who still squatted in the heat and shook the skillet of frying pork. "'Fah! Now hit's dawn, I reckon,' said old Sally, slowly rising and straightening her bent back, and the woman from the bed called her orders. "'Not that cup,' she cried, as Sally began pouring black coffee into a cracked white cup. "'Get the chainy one. I hid it yonder in the corner, hind the tin can, to keep em from using it every day. I had a whole set of that when I married Farwell. Give it here.' She took the precious relic in her work-worn hands and peered into it, then wiped it out with the corner of the sheet which covered her. This Thring did not see. He was watching the girl, as she broke open the hot, fragrant cornbread, and placed it beside his plate. "'Come,' she said. "'You sure must be right hungry. Sit here and eat.' David felt like one drunken with weariness when he rose, and caught at the edge of the table to steady himself. "'Aren't you hungry, too?' he asked. "'And Hoyle here. Sit beside me. We're going to have a feast, little chap.' The girl placed an earthen crock on the table and took from it honey in the broken comb, rich and dark. "'Have a little of this with your pong. It's right good,' she said. "'Frail, he found a bee-tree,' piped the child suddenly, gaining confidence as he saw the stranger engaged in the very normal act of eating with the relish of an ordinary man. He edged forward and sat himself gingerly on the outer corner of the next chair, and accepted a huge piece of the pone from David's hand. His sister gave him honey, and Sally dropped pieces of the sizzling hot pork on their plates from the skillet. David sipped his coffee from the flowered chaney cup contentedly. Served without milk or sugar, it was strong, hot, and reviving. The girl shyly offered more of the cornbread as she saw it rapidly disappearing, pleased to see him eat so eagerly, yet abashed at having nothing else to offer. "'I'm sorry we can give you only such as this.' We don't live like you do in the north. Have a little more of the honey. Ah, but this is fine. Good, hey, little chap? You are doing a very beneficent thing, do you know, saving a man's life? He glanced up at her flushed face, and she smiled appreciatingly. He fancied her smiles were rare. But it's quite true. Where would I be now but for you and Hoyle here, lying under the lee side of the station coughing my life away? and all my own fault, too. I should have accepted the bishop's invitation. You helped me when the colt was bad. Her soft voice, low and monotonous, fell musically on his ear when she spoke. Naturally. But how about that, anyway? It's a wonder you weren't killed. 
How came a youngster like you there alone with these beasts? Thring had an abrupt manner of springing a question, which startled the child, and he edged away, furtively watching his sister. Did you hitch that kicking brute alone and drive all that distance? Aunt Sally, she helped me to tie him up. She gave him con, whilst I throwed on the strops. And when he's once it tied up, he goes all right. The Adam grinned. Hits his way. He's mean, but he never works both ends at onset. Good thing to know. But you're a hero, do you understand that? The child continued to edge away, and David reached out and drew him to his side. Holding him by his two sharp little elbows, he gave him a playful shake. I say, do you know what a hero is? The little boy stopped grinning and looked wildly to his sister. But receiving only a smile of reassurance from her, he lifted his great eyes to Thring's face. Then slowly the little form relaxed, and he was drawn within the doctor's encircling arm. I don't reckon, was all his reply, which ambiguous remark caused David, in his turn, to look to the sister for elucidation. She held a long, lighted candle in her hand and paused to look back as she was leaving the room. Yes, you do, Hanasan. You remember the boy with the queer long name sister told you about, who stood there when the ship was all afire and wouldn't leave because his father told him to buy it? He was a hero. But Hoyle was too shy to respond, and David could feel his little heart thumping against his arm as he held him. Tell the gentleman, Hoyle. He don't buy it, I reckon, called the mother from her corner. His name begun like yon, Cass, but I can't remember the hall of it. Casabianca, was it? said Thring, smiling. I reckon. Did you uns know him? When I was a small chap like you, I used to read about him. Then the Adam yielded entirely, and leaned comfortably against David, and his sister left them, carrying the candle with her. Old Sally threw another log on the fire, and the flames leaped up the cavernous chimney, lighting the room with dramatic splendor. Thring took note of its unique furnishing. In the corner opposite the one where the mother lay was another immense four-poster bed, and before it hung a coarse homespun curtain, half concealing it. At its foot was a huge box of dark wood, well-made and strong, with a padlock. This, and the beds, seemed to belong to another time and place, in contrast to the other articles, which were evidently mountain-made, rude in construction and hewn out by hand, the chairs unstained and unpolished, and seated with splints. The walls were roughly dressed logs, of which the house was built, the chinks plastered with deep, red-brown clay. Depending from nails driven in the logs were festoons of dried apple and strips of dried pumpkin, and hanging by their braided husks were bunches of Indian corn, not yellow like that of the north, but white or purple. There were bags, also, containing Thring knew not what, although he was to learn later, when his own larder came to be eked out by sundry gifts of dried fruit and sweet corn, together with the staple of beans and peas from the widow's store. Beside the window of small panes was a shelf, on which were a few worn books, and beneath hung an almanac. At the foot of the mother's bed stood a small spinning-wheel, with the wool still hanging to the spindle. David wondered how long since it had been used. The scrupulous cleanliness of the place satisfied his fastidious nature, and gave him a sense of comfort in the homey interior. 
He liked the look of the bed in the corner, made up high and round, and covered with marvellous patchwork. As he sat thus, noting all his surroundings, Hoyle still nestled at his side, leaning his elbows on the doctor's knees, his chin in his hands, and his soft eyes fixed steadily on the doctor's face. Thus they advanced rapidly toward an amicable acquaintance, each questioning and being questioned. "'What is a bee-tree?' said David. "'You said somebody found one.' "'Hits a big holler log, and hits plum full of bees and honey. Frail, he found this one. "'Tell me about it. Where was it?' "'Hit wa up yonder, high up the mountain. "'There's a hole thou where the wild cats live in. Wild cat hole. Frail, he were a-huntin' for a cat. Some men thou at the hotel, they were plum mad to hunt wild cat with the dogs, and frail, he allowed to get the cat for em. And when was that? Last summer, when the hotel were open, there were a heap o' men at the hotel. And now, about the bee-tree? Frail, he never let on like he know there were a bee-tree, and then this fall he took me with him, and we made a big fire, and then we cut down the tree, and we stayed there the whole day, too, and ate there, and had rosinias by the fire, too. I say, you know, there seem to be a lot of things you will have to enlighten me about. After you get through with the bee-tree, you must tell me what rosinias are. And then what did you do? Thou a heap of honey. That tree hit one nigh about plum full of honey, and the bees were that mad you couldn't let em come nigh ye, thought they would sting ye. They stung me, and I never hollered. Frail, he loud if you hollered, you weren't good for nothin', goin' bee-huntin'. Is Frail your brother? Yes. He can do a whole heap of things, Frail can. They were a heap of honey in that thar tree. Bind a barrel full, or more'n that. We have a whole tub of honey out there in the loom-shed yet. And Ma done sent all the rest to the neighbors, cause Ma said they want no use in humans being fool hogs like the bees were, or keepin' more'n they could eat just for themselves. Yes called the mother from her corner, where she had been admiringly listening. There's a heap like that, eh way, but hit ain't our way here in the mountains. Let the doctor tell you something now, Hoyle. He mount lot a heap if you hark to him right smart, thought talkin' the whole time yourself. I has to tell him bouts the rosinias. He said so. There they be, he pointed to a bunch of Indian corn. You wrap em up in their shucks, whilst they're green and soft and keep em up in the ashes where hits right hot, and then, when they're rosted, eat em so. Now, what do you know? Why, he knows a heap, son. Don't ax that away. In my country, away across the ocean, began David. Tell about the ocean. How hit look? In my country, we don't have Indian corn, nor bee-trees, nor wild cat-holes, but we have the ocean all around us, and we see the ships, and, like that there one, where the bow stood, was hit war on fire? Something like, yes. Then he told about the sea, and the ships, and the great fishes, and was interrupted with the query, Reckon you done see that there fish, what swallowed up the man in the Bible, and then throwed him up again? Why, no, son, you know that there fish were dead long for we as was born. You mustn't ax fool questions, honey. Old Sally sat crouched by the hearth, intently listening, 
and asking as naive questions as the child, whose pallid face grew pink and animated, and whose eyes grew larger as he strove to see with inward vision the things Thring described. It was a happy evening for little Hoyle. Leaning confidently against David, he sighed with repletion of joy. He was not eager for his sister to return. Not he. He could lean forever against this wonderful man and listen to his tales. But the doctor's weariness was growing heavier, and he bethought himself that the girl had not eaten with them, and feared she was taking trouble to prepare quarters for him, when if she only knew how gladly he would bunk down anywhere, only to sleep while this blessed and delicious drowsiness was overpowering him. "'Where is your sister, Hoyle? Don't you reckon it's time you and I were abed?' he said, adopting the child's vernacular. "'She's making your bed ready in the loom-shed, likely,' said the mother, ever alert. With her pale, prematurely wrinkled face, and uncannily bright and watchful eyes, she seemed the controlling, all-pervading spirit of the place. "'Run, child, and see what's keeping her so long.' "'It's dark out there,' said the boy, stirring himself slowly. "'Run, honey. You hain't afeard. Can drive a team all by yourself. Dark hain't nothin'. I been all over these here mountains, when there wa'n't one star light. Maybe you can help her.' At that moment she entered, holding the candle high to light her way through what seemed to be a dark passage, her still sweet face a bit flushed, and stray tresses of white cotton clinging down her blue homespun dress. The doctor's most dead for sleep, Cass. I'm right sorry to keep you so long, but we are obliged. She had lifted her troubled eyes as Thring interrupted her. Ah, no, no. I really beg your pardon for coming in on you this way. It was not right, you know. It was a, a predicament, wasn't it? It certainly wasn't right to put you about so. If you will just let me go anywhere, only to sleep, I shall be greatly obliged. I'm making you a lot of trouble, and I'm so sorry. His profusion of manner, of which he was entirely unaware, embarrassed her. Although not shy like her brother, she had never encountered any one who spoke with such rapid abruptness, and his swift, penetrating glance and pleasant ease of the world abashed her. For an instant she stood perfectly still before him, slowly comprehending his thought, then hastened with her inherited, inborn ladyhood, to relieve him from any sense that his sudden descent upon their privacy was an intrusion. Her mind moved along direct lines from thought to expression, from impulse to action. She knew no conventional tricks of words or phrases for covering an awkward situation, and her only way of avoiding a self-betrayal was by silence, and a mask-like impassivity. During this moment of stillness, while she waited to regain her poise, he, quick and intuitive as a woman, took in the situation, yet he failed to comprehend the character before him. To the one accustomed to the conventional, perfect simplicity seems to conceal something held back. It is hard to believe that all is being revealed. Hence her slower thought, in reality, comprehended him the more truly. What he supposed to be pride and shame over their meagre accommodations was, in reality, genuine concern for his comfort, an embarrassment before his ease and ready phrases. As in a swift breeze her thoughts were caught up and borne away upon them, but after a moment they would sweep back to her, a flock of innocent, startled doves. Still holding her candle aloft, she raised her eyes to his and smiled. "'We'n's a right glad you came. 
"'If you can be comfortable where we are obliged to put you to sleep, you must bide a while.' She did not say obliged this time. He had not pronounced it so, and he must know. "'That is so good of you. And now you are very tired yourself and have eaten nothing. You must have your own supper. Hoyle can look after me.' He took the candle from her and gave it to the boy, then turned his own chair back to the table and looked inquiringly at Sally squatted before the fire. Not another thing shall you do for me until you are waited on. Take my place here. David's manner seemed like a command to her, and she slid into the chair with a weary, drooping movement. Hoyle stood holding the candle, his wry neck twisting his head to one side, a smile on his face, eyeing them sharply. He turned a questioning look to his sister, as he stiffened himself to his newly acquired importance as host. Thring walked over to the bedside. In the morning— when we are all rested, I'll see what can be done for you, he said, taking the proffered old hand in his. I am not Dr. Hoyle, but he has taught me a little. I studied and practiced with him, you know. Have ye? Then ye must know a heap. Hits right like the Lord sent ye. Ye see something peered like to give way, whilst I were cutting light wood the other day, and I went all in a heap, crossed a log, and I reckon I hurt me some. I hain't been able to move a foot since, and I lay out there nigh on a whole day whilst Hoyle here run claw down to Sally's place to get her. He couldn't a lift me herself, he's that weak. He tried to haul me in, but when I hollered, suffering so I was just bleached to holler, he kivered me up where I lay and let out for Sally, and she and her man they got me up here, and I've been here ever since. I reckon I never will leave this bed, aunt well I'm carried out in a box. Oh, no, not that. You're too much alive for that. We'll see about it tomorrow. Good night. Hold oh, I show you the way, said the girl, rising. Your bed is in the loom shed. I'm right sorry it's so cold. I put blankets there, and you can use all you like of them. I would have given you Frail's place up garret, only he might come in any time and— now nah, he won't. He's too scared at— Hoyle's interruption stopped abruptly, checked by a glance of his sister's eye. I hope you'll sleep well. Sleep? I shall sleep like a log. I feel as if I could sleep for a week. It's awfully good of you. I hope we haven't eaten all the supper, Hoyle and I. Come, little chap. Good night. He took up his valise and followed the boy, leaving her standing by the uncleared table, gazing after him. "'Now you eat, Cassandra. You are nigh about perished you are that tired,' said her mother. Then old Sally brought more pork and hot pone from the ashes, and they sat down together, eating and sipping their black coffee in silence. Presently Hoyle returned and began removing his clumsy shoes by the fire. "'Did he ax ye a heap of questions, Hoyle?' queried the old woman sharply. "'Nah, didn't ax nothin'. "'Wow!' Look out at you don't let nothing on if he does. Talkin' may hurt, and hit may not. He ain't no government man, Ma. Hit's all right, I reckon, but them at lawns young to hold their tongue saves a heap of trouble for themselves. After they had eaten, old Sally gathered the few dishes together and placed all the splint-bottomed chairs back against the sides of the room, and, only half disrobing, crawled into the far side of the bed opposite to the mother's behind the homespun curtain. "'Tomorrow I reckon I can go home to my old man, now you've come, Cass.' 
Yes, said the girl in a low voice. You have been right kind to we all, Aunt Sally. Then she bent over her mother, ministering to her few wants. Lifting her forward, she shook up the pillow, and gently laid her back upon it, and lightly kissed her cheek. The child had quickly dropped to sleep, curled up like a ball on the farther side of his mother's bed, undisturbed by the low murmur of conversation. Cassandra drew her chair close to the fire, and sat long gazing into the burning logs that were fast crumbling into a heap of glowing embers. She uncoiled her heavy bronze hair, and combed it out slowly, until it fell a rippling mass to the floor as she sat. It shone in the firelight, as if it had drawn its tint from the fire itself, and the cold night had so filled it with electricity that it flew out and followed the comb, as if each hair were alive, and made a moving aureola of warm red amber about her drooping figure in the midst of the somber shadows of the room. Her face grew sad, and her hands moved listlessly, and at last she slipped from her chair to her knees, and wept softly and prayed, her lips forming the words soundlessly. Once her mother awoke, lifted her head slightly from her pillow, and gazed an instant at her, then slowly subsided, and again slept. End of chapter 2